Welcome to How Story Works from Chipperish Media. I'm concept developer Dr. Kelly Jones. And I'm story expert Lonnie Diane Rich. We are breaking up How Story Works into four seasons following four topics character, conflict, structure, and magic. This is season three, structure. Today on How Story Works, the conversation is about types of structures. Pages 92 to 118 in the How Story Works paperback or chapter six, structure and practice for those using the Kindle or audiobook versions. Story is power, and we don't leave power on the table. So let's get to work. Okay, all right. And again, quick reminders to reinforce learning. Uh, The biggest thing we want you to remember about structure is the sea change model. (laughs) The sea change model, yes. When we talked about structure earlier in this season, I told you that structure must fit this model. We start the conflict, we escalate the conflict, and then continue to escalate the conflict, spinning that out for as long as you need your story to continue. Then you end the conflict and you change the world, which is what creates meaning. That is all a structure needs to do, but it can do a lot more, But that's the basics. So if you understand that, you understand structure. Yeah. And and I think most of us, like going back to English 101 Mm -hmm. or, you know, kind of beginning literature classes, we're taught a three-act structure. Yes. Mm -hmm. Um, And I I think a lot of things, we kind of intuit a Mm three-act structure. Um, We talked in the last episode about the number three. Yes. Mm -hmm. And it being a mag, uh, like a really magical number, Mm -hmm. because that is the point at which we start to identify patterns. Yes. Just completely neurologically correct. Mm -hmm. If you have two things, you have a data point. Mm -hmm. Once you have three, then you have the possibility for pattern. Mm -hmm. And because so many stories do follow a three act structure, many of us have kind of intuited that like Mm -hmm. we we may realize it without even being able to name it right right? because Mm -hmm. so many things follow that it's not the only way to do it nope there are many paths to us yes um but go ahead and explain that classic three-act structure for us. Yes. Um, The classic three-act structure is, like we said, three acts, right? So we've got an act, as those of you who remember from last week, an act is a series of scenes that fundamentally changes the protagonist's relationship with the conflict. Um, So you have three of these acts that escalate that central narrative conflict. Um, And then along the way, uh, the thing that I've kind of added to that is this idea of anchor scenes. These are scenes um, that have have a a specific job to do that have an impact that kind of like herd the thousands of sheep that are your story into the same direction, right? Um, And so the anchor scenes basically work to herd that story in the direction that you want it to go in. Um, And again, anchor scenes, for those of you who were with us last week and just need that little reminder, uh, anchor scenes are a type of scene that specifically escalates the central narrative conflict. So you're changing kind of the the mood the purpose the relationship to the conflict like these are the major you're keeping it on track like you are the anchor scenes are directly related to the central narrative conflict you can go off track in other scenes you can have a subplot that's going on you can have things that's happening with other characters you can do all sorts of things but these anchor scenes keep us returning to that central narrative conflict escalating that central narrative conflict moving that forward and depending upon the scope of your story if you're doing a big like family 
saga type of story. You're gonna have lots of things going on. If you have something like Game of Thrones, you're going to have a number of uh, central narrative conflicts different storylines that all have their own central narrative conflict that all move along aside, you know, one another. Um, that is an incredibly complicated kind of structure that is like varsity level. We're still here at JV. We're going to be talking about that three act structure. <laughs> yeah. And I, and I mean, in the most very basic sense, a three act structure is a beginning, a middle and an end. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah. Um, we had talked a little bit about different ways that you can structure a story, different structures that you can use. Um, I have had a lot of fun reading about how some writers use tarot mm-hmm. or use tarot cards to help them plot yeah. or help them structure a story. Uh, and I really particularly like this one for just a basic three act structure mm-hmm. is what if, what then, what next? Yes. Mm-hmm. And so you're kind of going, what if you engage in this mm-hmm. conflict? What happens then? What happens right. next? You're showing like that changed world, but you can draw three tarot cards yes. and kind of say, all right, this is what I'm going to use uh-huh. for act one. What I'm going to use for act two. This is what I'm going to use for act three. Creative delimitation. Right. Tarot is amazing yes. for that. Now, anybody who's unfamiliar with tarot, tarot is an ancient practice, and each card has a particular meaning. And if you pull a card randomly, and then you look at a way to apply that meaning into your story, that is fabulous. I love yeah. that. No, it's super mm-hmm. fun. Um, and then what we're about to talk about with these, this three-act structure with seven anchor scenes, then I would have a top row of three cards. And mm-hmm. I would lay out seven yep. cards for anchor scenes within mm-hmm. those three acts. Yeah. So it would be kind of a, even just a practice way. Like if you laid out those mm-hmm. cards, what could you write? That is from such that? a wonderful idea. Um, yeah. And I'm going to use that when I do my assignment for you that you have given me where I've got to just start writing stuff. Right. And I'm going to pull out some tarot and see if I can do that. Uh, because delimitations, honestly, are such a great way of accessing your inspiration. Um, but right now, we're going to be talking about the three-act structure with seven anchor scenes. Um, and I'm going to go through, I'm going to lay all of that out. Um, but one of the things that y'all should know is that if any of this is a little too confusing or whatever. There are some diagrams within the How Story Works book. So if you have purchased your copy, then you can go ahead and reference that. Even if you have the audiobook, um, the audiobook comes with a PDF that will have all of that for you. And if you haven't purchased it yet, go ahead and purchase it. It's amazing. It's the last book that you're going to need on narrative and storytelling, I guarantee you. Um, anyway, um, remember that the acts are about changing your protagonist's relationship to the central narrative conflict. So when we're talking about these three acts and we talked about this a little bit last week act one is where you start the conflict remember in sea change we start with the s start the conflict um, from the start of act one you initiate your central narrative conflict get your protagonist committed to fighting their goals so at the beginning again your protagonist may not even know what's going on but by the end of act one they have got their money on the table they are going into this conflict with a clear goal in mind um, and that's the thing too is that the the um Central narrative conflict, as we've talked about it, conflict, narrative conflict, of course, is goal-based conflict. Um, And so we have a goal that is strong for your protagonist. On page one, your protagonist doesn't have that goal 
right? They don't even know anything is about to come and smack them in the head, probably. Um, and then by the end, they do have a clear sense of that goal. So that is part of what the job of act one is to do is to figure out the goal, set it clearly, make sure the protagonist knows what it is and the protagonist is an active pursuit of it. Um, so that's all the stuff that you want to do in act one. Yeah. And, and I think, you know, kind of when you've hit the end of act one, because mm -hmm. that protagonist has made a choice. Has made an active choice. Yes, that is your anchor scene at the end of um, of act one, which is also a turning point. When we get to anchor scenes, we're going to be talking about all that. That yes. doesn't make sense to you right now. Hang in here. We will explain it. Um, but right now I'm just laying out the basics of the three acts, and then we will get into the nitty gritty with the anchor scenes and how they interact with your, um, with your three act story. So act two is escalate the conflict. Again, it's S-E, right? Escalate the conflict. In act two, you make the conflict worse and worse. Always be escalating <laughs> until we get to the point where the stakes are as high as they can go. And your protagonist is committed to a figurative or literal life or death situation. And by figurative life or death, I mean that losing this conflict would mean a world change so significant to your protagonist as to fundamentally change them and their lives. A figurative death would then occur. And as I say that, even though your protagonist may not want that figurative death, sometimes that figurative death is exactly what they need. Mm. Um, so remember that you're, that when we get to ending the conflict, which is what we do in act three, that who wins is not, does not necessarily need to be your protagonist. Sometimes the story and the meaning and everything is better if it's not. It's a bummer, um, but it, it can actually be good in the long run. Um, so again, at the end of act two, your protagonist is making another active choice to continue in this, even though the stakes have been raised so much that it has become figurative life or death, sometimes literal life or death, depending on the kind of story that you're telling. Yeah. And act three is where again, S E E, right? We end the conflict. So it's start, escalate, end, C end the conflict and show how the world has changed. So remember that your protagonist does not need to win the conflict like we were just talking about in order for your story to be complete. You can complete and create a completed story, a full composition without your protagonist winning. Um, but you know, if you have a character who is like fighting to save their marriage throughout the entire story, they lose that ending while a bummer can be extremely meaningful and a figurative death can be an amazing way to show your protagonist rising from the ashes, right? A phoenix rises from the ashes. And that is such a powerful and meaningful symbolism for us because that happens to us in our lives all the time. So again, you're going to decide the conflict. You're going to end the conflict with a winner decided, um, but it doesn't always have to be your protagonist. And sometimes having your protagonist lose can be really, really great. Um, and then after that, we show how the world has changed. Now, I will say just briefly um, that sometimes people will, will argue that like, well, act three is when we end the conflict and then when that conflict is decided they lose and then we go into act four which is the resolution scenes right which is where we illustrate how the world has changed um, and then that can be seen as an act four to me I always feel like that is so fundamentally tied into um, playing out the momentum of that uh, win or lose in that situation um, that to me it always appears to me as one act if you want to 
refer to this as a four act because of that last little bit of resolution, you may certainly do so. It's your story. You figure out how you want those acts to fall. To me, I see that all as one act. So again, that's all sea change. Start the conflict, escalate, 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 end the conflict, and then how has the world changed? And those are your three acts. Okay. Does that all make sense? Yes, absolutely. That all makes sense. So then you've got these, you know, really broad strokes Mm -hmm. of three acts. And now you are going to layer over that seven anchor scenes. Seven anchor scenes. And what these are, if you think of your story as like a tent, these are the tent poles. These are the poles that hold it up. And while these poles are holding it up, it allows you to pack a bunch of stuff in that tent, right? (laughs) So this is what allows you to take, like, because you know you have these anchor scenes that are going to keep your central narrative conflict on track, that gives you space within that tent to, like, put a bunch of stuff in there, to to fill it with other things, to uh, have some fun, uh, you know, expand upon your magic, you know, do other things, subplots, you know, um, whatever you want to do. So when you think about this and, and these anchor scenes, coming in in those tentpole ways, that means that you will be absolutely making sure that your central narrative conflict is moving the way that it should, is holding its focus the way that it should, um, while making room for everything else. So um, the seven anchor scenes, um, first, let's go ahead and review very quickly. We did our narrative units last week. So a scene is a series of chronologically continuous beats pulled together to create change within a story. An anchor scene is a varietal of scene. It is a scene that significantly escalates the central narrative conflict. And a turning point is an anchor scene. A turning point is a varietal of anchor scene, right? (laughs) Um, An anchor scene where the protagonist makes an active choice to escalate the central narrative conflict. And these turning points you will find at the turn, this is why we call it a turning point, because it's when we turn the acts. When we turn from act one to act two, that's a turning point. That's on an active choice. When we turn from act two to act three, that's a turning point point that's on an active choice. So the first of these scenes is the inciting incident, right? This is the first moment that the protagonist feels the influence of the antagonist pushing back against their goal. The inciting incident should happen as close to the start of the story as possible. A lot of times people will be like, well, I have to set up the town. I have to set up the setting. I have to set up the people. I have to set up the characters. I have to show this. I have to like exposit everything. I'm like, you know what? You can do that while trouble is brewing. Like, you know, tell your story walking, spin a couple of plates all at once. Um, You can do that all at once. Um, So we sometimes have the idea that we can only do one thing at a time. And the thing is, no, you can do many many things at the same time. That said, you know your story best, you know what's required, you know what you need to do. Um, So trust your instinct on that. But I would say get your inciting incident, get that anchor scene as close to the top of your story as you can. If that's one page in, if that's 10 pages in, you know, fair enough, right? Do the best you can. Your story is going to require certain things of you. Um, But try. Try to get it as close to the top as you possibly can. So once you've got your inciting incident there in which the influence of the antagonist on the protagonist's life is starting to be felt, um, then you escalate from there. The important thing to understand too is that we don't need to see the antagonist. We just need to feel the influence of the antagonist blocking the protagonist um, in the scene. So things like where we have an antagonist who is a killer, it's a murder mystery, we can't know who the antagonist is. That is totally 
totally legit as long as we are feeling their thwarting of the protagonist. That is what is truly important. Um, so we do the inciting incident. We feel that, um, you know, pressure from the antagonist on the protagonist. Um, and then we escalate that conflict from there until we get to the end of act one, where your protagonist's relationship with the conflict changes. They are more committed. Their money's on the table. And that is where we hit anchor scene two, which is engaging with the conflict. And this is our first turning point. This is where we turn from act one to act two. So engaging with the conflict, anchor scene number two. Up until now, the protagonist may have known that someone or something was getting in between them and their goal, but they were still figuring things out. By the end of act one, they know they're being actively blocked and they commit to their goal, actively choosing to engage in the central narrative conflict to pursue their objective. Um, so again, this is also the first turning point of the story. And Kelly, I'm going to throw a quiz at you. What is a turning point? Okay, so this is an active choice by the protagonist that moves the story from one act to the next. This changes the nature of the protagonist's relationship to the conflict. So if you're mapping out your story, you will see an active choice that moves from one act mm -hmm. to the next, mm -hmm. right? So uh, in a larger story, you might need more anchor scenes, mm -hmm. right? A yes. bigger tent needs more poles, um, but every act needs a turning point to move us into that act. So in a three-act story, you have two turning points, mm -hmm. one to move us from act one to act two, and then one to move us from act two to act three. Absolutely, absolutely. And again, like if you have a lot of acts, then you're gonna want more of those. But having that active choice be in that turning point just gives it all that much more momentum. Um, all right, so here we go into the next um, turning point, which is in the middle of act two. Um, when we talk about how a, a big tent needs more poles, um, act two tends to be kind of the longer act in the story. Like the, the first act has got a lot of stuff going on. Everything's happening. Act two tends to be uh, longer in terms of like how much of your story you're spending on it. It's a lot of escalation, escalation, escalation. Um, and so one thing that can help like hold up a saggy act two is in in the middle of that putting in a midpoint reversal this will also be about the middle of your story mm -hmm. um, and so the midpoint reversal um, is a great idea to introduce new information a new complication something that significantly impacts how the protagonist may see the conflict um, they could learn something new about the antagonist that complicates the conflict oh my god Darth Vader is my father they could get knocked <laughs> back significantly um, they could uh, you know find out information about what they're doing that makes them question the morality of their own stance there are a number of different things that you can do in the midpoint reversal but it really can like add um, a, another layer of complexity to the escalations that you're building into it um, so this is where the conflict and the protagonist's dedication to win the conflict will intensify um, so you will find stories that don't really have that in the middle of act two and if you feel like your story doesn't need it again this is completely modular this is just an example of a thing that you can can do you don't have to do any of it but there are reasons why this is sort of the way this is laid out um, okay yeah. so can i check my understanding yes with a midpoint reversal example yep 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 okay because i'm thinking the princess bride mm -hmm. we have buttercup mm -hmm. and we have the dread pirate roberts yes who's still in a mask and is not apparently recognizable mm -hmm. uh because it's a very effective costume and and buttercup is like making an active choice yes 
to shove him down a very steep hill. Mm-hmm. But as he rolls down the hill, she's like, you can die. Yeah. Pushes him, mm-hmm. right? Good active choice there. And as he's rolling down, he says, as you wish. Yeah. And she realizes mm-hmm. who he really is. Mm-hmm. And then hurls herself down the hill after him <laughs> as as you would. Yes. Midpoint. Mm-hmm. Is that kind of a reversal of the understanding yes. of the conflict of that story? Absolutely. Wonderful example of how a midpoint reversal works. I haven't mapped uh, The Princess Bride. I haven't story mapped it, so I'm not exactly sure where that falls. But as the kind of this is the information you get, right? This person that you're working with um, who you cannot stand, right? You find out is your long lost one true love, right? That completely changes everything and complicates the conflict going forward, right? Um, so yeah, that's a really fun one. I really do need yeah, to map. Yeah, it's just a really fun one, I want right? to map The Princess Bride. I think The Princess Bride has an unusual structure um, and so I really want to play with that. Um, but yes, that is exactly the kind of thing that I'm talking about. Like having in information that that is revealed to your protagonist that completely changes how they view that conflict and make it change the way that they are approaching that conflict can be really really fun to put in there um so then again after the midpoint reversal escalate 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 um and we get to the end of act two the beginning of act three the end of act two is ends with our turning point our second turning point again turning point varietal of anchor scene um which is no way out but through um so this is the stakes are higher than they've ever been our protagonist commits fully to winning this conflict again this is where it even if it's not literal life or death consequence of losing this fight it feels like life or death Uh, Your protagonist cannot or will not go back. They must forge ahead, risking all. Um, So this is something where your protagonist has has changed too much. They've invested too much. There's too much on the line. They have to see it through. There is no way out but through. And then they forge forward deep into this conflict. Um, After that, where we have transitioned from Act 4 into Act 3. Now, like I was saying, Act 2 tends to be our longest as far as the amount of words, the amount of pages, the amount of time that we're in that space. Act 3 is the quickest. We have three anchor scenes in act three, which is also our shortest. So these are like boom, 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 one on top of the other. Um, We go into, and again, uh, this is another anchor scene that is optional. It's just an example of the kind of thing you can do, like the midpoint reversal. You can do it. You don't have to. You can do it. Um, We move into the dark moment, right? Um, And things are moving fast. We're right on the heels of no way out, but through. We've had this big commitment. Everything looks bleak. Uh, While the conflict is not yet lost, something deeply meaningful may be lost and our protagonist is smarting from that blow. The intensity of the dark moment is entirely up to you, or even including the dark moment or not, is entirely up to you. But if you decide to go for a dark moment, and let's reference Princess Bride again because it's amazing, go for the pain, not to the death, (laughs) to the pain. This is where you want to just torment your protagonist. Give them as much pain as they can handle and live Um, because that is what the dark moment is about. The dark moment is about that victory, snatching victory, you know, from the mouth of defeat, right? You know? um, <laughs> I clearly cannot trust the cup in front of you. I know. <laughs> I 
clearly cannot trust the cup in front of you. Um, all right. So the dark moment, um, we've gotten through that, right? That is at the beginning of act three. Then we move directly into the climax and the climax is this moment where everything is decided. This is the battle. This is leading us into the moment where, um, the winner is decided either your protagonist wins or your protagonist loses. And let me once again, stress for those of you in the back, uh, that it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter who wins. Um, I mean, it will to you for your story, but I mean, as far as completing a narrative, um, as long as a winner is decided, your protagonist can win, your protagonist can lose. Um, but however you decide to do it, this is the moment when we know how that fight is finally decided. Um, then from the climax, boom, you go right into the resolution. Um, and the resolution can be a scene or a series of scenes that illustrate for us how the world has changed now that this fight has been won or lost. Um, what is different? And oftentimes you will see the difference can be solely just how your protagonist exists in the world, how this uh, conflict has changed your protagonist. And I think that the best stories, even when the outside world has changed, like say in Lord of the Rings, right? You know, Frodo and Sam come back from Mount Doom. Um, but Frodo is so fundamentally changed by this conflict, by what he's been through, um, that he can't come home. You can't go home again after that, right? He can't go back to being the guy that he was. He's completely different. And having that as part of, you know, how this character has changed, um, gives a lot of meaning to that story. If your story happens and your character is exactly the same at the end than they are in the beginning, um, that's speaks to me of like a missed opportunity. That said, we have a lot of stories, really great stories like that. Your Sherlock Holmes, like a lot of your mystery stories, your Hercule Poirot is not fundamentally changed, you know, at the end of, I think, what what is one of his? Is it Murder on the Orient Express, I think, is a Hercule Poirot. Clearly, it's been a while since I've read my Agatha Christie. <laughs> um, but like a lot of times where we have series stories with mysteries, we like for our detective to remain the same um, because what we have done in a mystery tends to be a more intellectual uh, story than necessarily a deeply emotional, you know, kind of story. So it really depends on what kind of story you're telling, how you want to tell it and what you want to happen to the world. Uh, but showing at least a world that has changed. Mm -hmm. um, uh, definitely, we want to know what has changed, um, you know, in a mystery where maybe the protagonist or detective has not changed fundamentally. We know that the world has changed because they've made it safer. They've taken a puzzle, they've taken a murder and they have solved it and they have put that murderer away and that justice prevails all that kind of stuff that is a story in the beginning of the of the world didn't have justice now at the end of the world we have justice um, so that's something that you're doing but in the resolution you are showing how the world has changed and that gives us the meaning for the whole story yeah and sometimes that can be quick right I mean, mm -hmm. like again yes. to go back to but I'm a cheerleader you get super quick saying mm -hmm. it's Megan's dad in a meeting, yeah. welcoming everyone yep. to the friends and families of homosexuals group. That is a completely different world. It is completely than different Than what we world. started with. Yes, exactly. Super quick saying, mm -hmm. gives it that wonderful feel-good right. ending resolution. That world mm -hmm. is different. It is. You know, yes. it's, it's just really fantastic. Mm -hmm. um, those of you that are mystery fans, like I am, the BBC Sherlock, we do get the emotional change. Yes. I'm just saying, highly recommend it. Benedict Cumberbatch does a fantastic job in that show, yes. and I really, really like it. Um, okay, so very, very quickly, and again, the visual of this mm -hmm. layout is mm -hmm. in the How Story Works book. Yes. 
But if you're looking at kind of laying these seven anchor scenes over three acts, Mm -hmm. in act one, you have the inciting incident and engaging with the conflict. In act two, you have the midpoint reversal and no way out but through. And then very quickly, because we do a lot in in a condensed space (laughs) for act three, you got the dark moment, the climax, and the resolution. Yes. Mm -hmm. Okay. Yeah, those all uh, line up together. And in the illustration in the book, you will see that like the there is an escalating line, like climbing up a mountain until we get to the climax. Then we have the sharp fall because we have rising tension throughout the whole thing. And then there's the fall and we end up in the resolution. And in some structures, you will hear the word uh, denouement thrown around. It is French. Um, it is very fancy. Uh, I just call those a resolution scenes, right? Because we that's that falling tension after all of that tension. Um, so yeah, you will see that again. That illustration is available in the book. And I believe I have it in a million places on the web or whatever. Like it's, it's out there. So you can definitely find it. Um, so I want to talk a little bit about uh, the ways in which you can differ. Because again, like people get very, very attached to the three acts and the seven anchor scenes. I mean, when I was, you know, teaching my class and at the end of the semester, they had 15 pages like a 15 mm-hmm. pages like a one act story you know um and my students would be like well i'm trying to fit three acts and seven anchor scenes in these 15 pages and I'm like, you cannot do that that is not no. the scope of that assignment so you're thinking about when you're thinking about the number of acts that you want to put in how you want to do this um you definitely want to think about the scope of what it is that you're doing are you doing like a comic book are you doing a graphic novel are you doing a you know standard regular book novel are you doing a screenplay these will all kind of have different ways of envisioning um um, these structures, but also like how you decide to build those structures is entirely up to you. Again, all you have to do is see change. If you can see change, then you've got everything that you need and you can build it however you want. Um, so like, you know, for the number of acts, you can do a one act story, you can do a three act story, you can do a five act story. Again, as many as you want based on what it is that you're trying to do. Again, if you're doing like a really long story and you've got like 45 acts, you may want to look at that. You may end up having pacing problems. That's a lot of escalation (laughs) to put your character through, right? In the course of a story. But again, like it depends on what it is that you're doing. You can absolutely customize this to whatever it is that you're trying to build. Yeah. Yeah, and it's just like, how big is that tent? (laughs) Yes, exactly. So now that we're talking about acts, pop quiz, Kelly, what is an act? Okay, so an act is a collection of scenes that work together for each major part of the story, Mm -hmm. right? Turning points mark the transition between acts. Acts show how the protagonist engages with the central narrative conflict after each turning point. Oh, my goodness. Very good. You Thank are you. I have so an good. excellent teacher. You are so good at all this. <laughs> so yeah. we, we've talked about kind of these, these big tents, mm-hmm. right, or larger compositions, mm-hmm. a novel, a screenplay, even a, a series, yeah. right? Mm-hmm. What about for very short fiction? Mm-hmm. Short fiction, um, I think one of the fun things about short fiction is that because it is so short, um, you really are able to do um, some more subtle work in it. You can do something very small. The intensity of your conflict needs to be able to fuel the scale of your project. So if you have a very short story or flash fiction, you can use a much 
much milder narrative conflict and then attach meaning to that. Um, like say a person in a grocery store only has enough money for one kind of cheese, but cannot decide between two varieties of cheese that they really want equally. That is an internal conflict in which you remember from the days when we were talking about conflict, right? You have a one person who wants two oppositional things, uh, mutually exclusive things equally, right? So they want these two varieties of cheese equally. Um, and each of those cheeses can represent something else, like a choice between an adventurous kind of cheese or a more mundane cheese might represent a choice between staying with a safe partner or reaching out for something riskier, new and different, staying with a safe job or taking the new job. Um, and those are small moments that can be deeply imbued with meaning depending on what you want to do. So one of the really wonderful things about short fiction is that you can take something like that and really examine it deeply, right? Whereas in a, a story where you're like chasing down a demon that is going to end the universe, you know, <laughs> like there's no time to think about what kind of cheese is preferred at this dinner party, you know? Um, so something like that you definitely can do with shorter fiction and that can make short fiction so much fun to play with because you can really extrapolate deep, deep meaning from something that would seem extremely mundane, extremely small. Um, so I really like that about short fiction, um, that you can, you can absolutely do that. Clearly, I cannot trust the cheese in front of you. <laughs> uh, well, and I think, I think short fiction, too, can help kind of eventually get you to a larger work, mm-hmm. if that is your goal. Sure, absolutely. I can write a scene. Mm-hmm. I don't know that I can sit down and write a novel, mm-hmm. or at least my brain doesn't think I can. Right. But if I write a collection, you know, like shorter pieces mm-hmm. that are maybe all in the same story. I might be able to go back and restructure those into something larger. Uh, But I also really just like the creative exercise Mm -hmm. of writing something really short. I think it's great. I have not been able to write short. Um, I always end Mm -hmm. up wanting to expand upon the universe and and spend more time with these characters. Uh, So I always struggle to write short, but it's something that I really want to do more of. I don't do short stories, but Mm -hmm. I will do random scenes. Yeah. Just, yeah, whatever. I really really like that as an exercise. Yeah, that's flash fiction, baby. I mean, absolutely you can do that it's very fun it is very fun it is very fun and that's the thing is that this structure like you know basic sea change can work for anything Mm -hmm. it can work for something Mm -hmm. very short it can work for something huge um like for instance if you're talking about parallel structures right so talking about game of thrones is probably my most go-to example of this where you have central narrative conflicts five six ten characters i mean good god these books are just incredibly expansive um and each character has their own central narrative conflict they have their own story. They might be, Arya might show up as a sub, you know, character in somebody else's, you know, story as well, but she also has her own arc. Um, and so where you've got like this big, like if you're doing a big family saga kind of, you know, Game of Thrones type of scale, you know, it's a thousand page book or whatever, you may have a number of completed compositions, right? Complete, you know, launched, started, escalated, um, ended and shown 
and how the world has changed um, with these characters all alongside each other. So you'll do a little bit of Arya and you'll do a little bit of, you know, Ned or you do a little bit of Jon Snow and you go from back and forth and they all have their own story that's being told. Um, so that is something else that you can do where you've got one book, but you've got like five or six compositions that are sort of running alongside each other and sometimes interacting with each other. Um, you know, you'll see Tyrion Lannister in the background of like three or four of these, you know, because he's a busy dude. Um, and But he's also got his own story that's being told. Um, so those are loads of fun. Again, that is like varsity level stuff. But if you look at what George R. R. Martin is doing, that's what he's doing. You know, he's got a lot of different stories, uh, complete compositions that are being told within the stories. I will say sometimes he will end a book and one or two of the compositions will not be complete yet. Uh, but I like what he does. And I think that it's really interesting. And if you are interested in doing, you know, really huge, you know, scale of storytelling like that, I, I think George R. R. Martin is the first author that I would absolutely mm. recommend for that. Yeah, I think of uh, Terry Pratchett's Discord Terry series. Yes. Mm -hmm. the Discworld series works mm -hmm. that way for me. Mm -hmm. um, I like your metaphor for par parallel structures mm -hmm. as dolphins. I, yes. I talk about they are dolphins that like will break a school of dolphins that some one will break the surface at one time and then another one will break the surface at another time, but they're all running parallel alongside each other. So that's usually the visual when I'm talking about parallel structures that I use. Yeah. Mm -hmm. um, and then we have kind of what it typically ends up being my very favorite kind of structure um, in any kind of story, uh, you have a nonlinear structure. Right. Um, you know, we've talked a little bit about chronology, like where I talk about a scene as a chronological series of beats, right? And most of the stories that we encounter happen chron chronologically, like this happens, then this happens, then this happens, then this happens. What is fascinating about a nonlinear structure is that you will see things escalating along a theme where the theme gets hit harder, but it's not necessarily in chronological order. Uh, the first thing that comes to mind, of course, for something like this would be Memento, right? I, mean, I think Arrival, Arrival. Uh, which we discussed last season, um, is a really good example of that kind of thing, um, where not everything is happening in chronological order, but our theme is being... Um, is uh, the theme is actually what is being escalated and what is is intensifying as we go through the story. Um, you will find this happen in science fiction scenarios a lot. Um, and uh, and I think that that's kind of part of the fun of some of those stories um, is is that sometimes you will not know how all of this relates chronologically until the final scene where everything sort of falls into place. Um, absolutely brilliant. Wonderful. Again, very varsity level stuff. Like this is absolute varsity level stuff. If you are struggling to understand any of the stuff that I've talked about in these, in this season of how story works or in these three seasons, of the conversations or in the entirety of the podcast, <laughs> um, it may be something that you're not ready to pick up yet. Um, but studying nonlinear structures, um, can be a wonderful way also of just looking at ways to intensify theme at the same time that you are intensifying your, um, central narrative conflict, uh, because whatever your theme is, if you know what it is, and sometimes we don't, and that's okay, fair enough. I didn't know why I made the bucket orange. It happens. It still can work. Um, but if you know what your theme is and you're working with your theme, learning how to intensify that some of these, uh, nonlinear 
nonlinear structures, nonlinear stories can be a really excellent way of figuring out um, how intensifying theme will work to like intensify the entire story. Yeah. yeah. Uh, and then we talked about compositions within compositions, like for a series. Yes. Right. Mm-hmm. So in terms of structure, then that is a nested structure. Yes, that's a nested structure. So like I, I've talked about this a lot. Again, Buffy is like my go-to example of this, um, where we have a big story that is happening over the course of a season. And then we have all these little stories, these nested episodic stories, um, where com- which are complete compositions. We open with a story, we end that story, we resolve that story, bad guy gets dusted or whatever. Um, and then we move into the next one. And in each one of those, we will also have scenes that escalate the central narrative conflict of the season as well. So we're actually pushing two things forward in each episode. Um, So all of those episodes are nested within a series. So an episode is a complete composition and the series, the season itself, the season itself um, is also a complete composition, Um, but they're doing all of that at the same time. So it's pretty cool. I love those. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. It's very, very cool. Mm -hmm. Um, And again, so much of, of, of this just kind of, consolidates in your brain or or starts to make a lot more sense or become a lot more applicable once you apply it Mm -hmm. to stories. Absolutely. you have homework for everyone. I do have homework. Um, all right. So this week, I want you to take a story that you've written or a story you love and see if you can identify the anchor scenes and the acts. Um, and remember that it might not map to our basic structure here. Again, there are a lot of structures out there. Try to decide what it is. Is, is it a parallel structure? Is it nonlinear? Is it three acts? Is it one? Is it five? Um, see if you can figure out how that story works. And a lot of times you will see that there are places where, um, you know, the story might not do what we are laying out here that it should do. Um, Does it work fine, even though it doesn't do those things? Find out why. Try to figure out why that is, if if you think it works great. Or if it doesn't work that well, what would you change? How would you use narrative theory to um, alter that story to make that work better? Um, And again, that is an analysis. That is the work that I have been doing all of these years in order to uncover all of this and figure out how it all works. Um, But the best way to uh, learn all of this in practice is to go and analyze every story and and take a look at it and really see what is it that makes this story work well yeah yeah um and and it's it's fun to do that with stories Mm -hmm. that you really love because you you gain kind of even more insight yeah into them you know or Mm -hmm. even more appreciation into them um so speaking of loving what you love what story are you loving this week you know, I read recently this book um, by Alison Frank and Asha Humans um, called Never Meant to Meet You. Um, and it is kind of a standard like women's fiction, sort of romantic comedy kind of story. Um, but I really loved it because, it, you know, at the center is this friendship between this black woman who is our narrator um, and this Jewish woman. And one of the things that I really loved about it is that it speaks very honestly about what those kinds of identities do to our experience of the world, how they make us experience the world, Um, the ways in which the black woman saw the Jewish woman as white, even though in a lot of ways, you know, uh, Jewish people are restricted from like 
whiteness. And of course, there's a lot of race stuff involved in that. But it was done in this very humorous, very straightforward, not stepping around anything kind of way. Um, And I actually really loved it because it felt like, oh, we're allowed to talk about this now oh, we're allowed to acknowledge the impact of whiteness on everyone, right? You know, oh, we're allowed to have this. And and having that conversation and having those things addressed and yet not overtake the entire story while still having a sweet romantic comedy and, um, and a love story between these two women, um, all of that stuff I absolutely adored. And I really would absolutely recommend it. I think it's just, it's a delightful women's fiction story. Um, and I really liked it. How about you? So what are you loving this week? So I am loving A Psalm for the Wild Built by Becky Chambers. Mm-hmm. Um, so before I explain this book, I have to explain how I got <laughs> this book. Because um, this is not something that would have probably come up mm-hmm. in in a lot of the you know books lists that I follow or whatever. Um, but my local bookstore here in Columbia is Skylark and mm-hmm. it is wonderful. And one of the things that you, you can purchase there, it's what they call a book spa. Mm-hmm. And oh my God. Uh, so wonderful. Right. Mm-hmm. So you fill out kind of, it, it's basically a questionnaire, like mm-hmm. your all time favorite books. Um, what do you like about them? You know, what do you enjoy the most? Um, and then they analyze that mm-hmm. for you and you go in and you yeah. have an hour consult mm-hmm. and they have a stack of recommendations. And then they explain why they're recommending mm-hmm. each book that they're recommending for you. It's one of the most fun things I've ever done. And and my taste is a little eclectic. <laughs> it it's it's a little bit all over the place. Mm-hmm. Um, and so what I loved is the the bookseller who was assigned to me had a stack, but because my list is kind of all over the place, mm-hmm. other people in the store were adding. Mm-hmm. They're like, oh, also this one, also yeah. this one. So I ended up with a very eclectic set of recommendations, mm-hmm. which was super fun. Um, and this book, uh, A Psalm for the Wild Bill uh, by, by Becky Chambers, was in there. Mm-hmm. And this is a monk and robot story. Mm-hmm. And at first I was like, um, what? <laughs> And I could just hear Josh Unruh from mm-hmm. Still Dead in the background saying, that's not how monks work. <laughs> um, and and this is this is not a, um, it, it, this was not built for structure. I think the plot is maybe T. Um, mm-hmm. It's described as a solar punk novella. Mm-hmm. I love this book so much. Like it restored my faith in humanity in terms of what we could be mm-hmm. and how we could operate. Mm-hmm. So you have this almost incredibly futuristic world mm-hmm. that is also ancient. Yes. That mm-hmm. is kind and based in curiosity and mm-hmm. honors the individuality of every person in mm-hmm. the world while also being funny mm-hmm. and snarky. And just adorable. Um, it is a short read. It is the most comforting book. I mean, it made me laugh. I wanted to hug it. Mm-hmm. And I keep buying copies for everyone I know and making them read it. <laughs> I know. What's fun is that uh, when I came out here uh, last fall, um, you bought me the book spa. And yeah. I went in and I gave them all of my list of books, which is completely different from your list yes. of books. But that book ended up in the pile. And I bought it because you had talked about it. Um, and I did really, really like it. I mean, I, I had certain moments where I was like, your story should start a while ago, you know, like that kind of thing. 
at the same time, again, that is not the end all be all, like as much as I believe deeply in, in how craft should be done, that is not the end all be all of the value of a story, right? This is just something that can help you build something that can work for you. Um, but, uh, but the book itself, like the world building done and the beautiful visual um, imagery of everything, like there's mm-hmm. so much in this world. I just wanted to live in it. Right. I just That's the wanted thing. to I just want to live in that book. Oh my God. I want to live in her caravan. Her right? little caravan. So great. Oh my God. It's amazing. So great. It's yep. amazing. And that the job, okay, this monk, like I just, I love this monk, their job was to um, give tea to people and listen to them tell their tale and like would, would create a tea specifically bespoke for them, for their issues, for their problems and the ritual of the tea and the listening and everything that they did. It was just so beautifully done and yeah there's a lot in there that I just absolutely love but to have that Mm -hmm. you know but then also like to get to the point that you realize you need someone to make you a cup of tea a bespoke cup of tea which is so lovely I know um but to have that level of insight um hope for the future of Mm -hmm. all of us you know but with it and there's there's a full religious mythology in there there is a complicated world history in there Mm -hmm. but to make it funny Mm -hmm. because it is it's (laughs) i just i don't know absolutely loved such so a lovely, much and it's a novella it's a yes. shorter you know it's a shorter piece um and yeah I mean even with like you know because I can't help it like my story stuff yes. gets into everything I can't just sit and watch something or read something and just be like okay here I am and this is the thing that's happening I'm always like no it should have been structured like this and you should have done that and yada yada all of that aside, that is my bullshit. This, um, I think, is a wonderful novella, A Psalm for the Wild Built by Becky Chambers. Absolutely go and grab it. It will be worth the afternoon that you sit with your cup of tea reading it. Um, and it really is very lovely. But before we move on to closing today's episode of How Story Works, Kelly... I want to say what a joy it has been to record with you again. It's been a while since we've been able to record a podcast. You have a full and demanding life that doesn't give you a lot of time for this sort of thing anymore. Um, But I've had so much fun. It has been such a joy working with you. Um, Doing more How Story Works Without You is going to be a particular exercise. And ah, but... um, But I'm so excited for you that you've got so many things in your life that are keeping you so busy and that you're happy. And I just, I love working with you and it's such a joy. And anytime you want to come back, you absolutely, absolutely should. Thank you. And I love it. It's been so much fun getting mm-hmm. back into scripting and recording with you yeah. and throwing you completely off script because I love that's it. my job around here. Um, <laughs> but it's, it's been, it's been mm-hmm. so great. And I'm so proud of you Thank for you. getting the How Story Works book done. And it is truly excellent. Mm-hmm. Um, and I mean, this has just been a blast. And I can't wait to see what you are going to do next. Uh-huh. Because I, I will the, be there cheering the you on. <laughs> and then I get to listen to How Story Works as a listener. I know. Which is yeah. going to be super exciting. Oh, well, I love you. I'm going to miss you. I love and you I'm going to not cry. So let's move on. <laughs> 
If you'd like to join in this discussion, Patreon supporters can reach us through the Discord channel. And you all can find me on TikTok. Just search for Lonnie Dine Rich or How Story Works. I also have a writing-focused weekly newsletter. You can find that at dearwriter.substack.com. The How Story Works podcast and everything Chipperish Media does is made free to all by our generous patrons. If you're getting value out of this discussion, we ask that you help us out by kicking a dollar to a month our way so we can keep making these shows. This episode of How Story Works was brought to you by the Chipperish Media producers who support us on Patreon at the power producer level. These people are the reason why How Story Works is coming to you free and ad-free right now. So thank you to our power producers. Alice, Christina, Erica, Gear, Holly, Jane, Kevin, Kristen, Michael, Rochelle, Rose, Sarah, Shelley, Stephania, and Stephanie. Kelly is really busy, as we've said, so we're going to let her go for the rest of this season. But I will be back talking about structure in the wild, taking a look at how structure works in stories that we love. If you'd like to play along, next time I'm going to be looking at structure in the movie The Half of It from 2020. If you'd like to play along, remember to identify the central narrative conflict and then track how that conflict moves through the story. And then you can compare your notes to mine next week. Kelly, thank you so much for making the time to do this season of How Story Works Conversations. We love you and we will miss you. I love you and I will miss you too. And thank you for inviting me. Um, and I am going to play along because I have not yet watched the half of it. Oh, I love that movie so, so much. It's going to be super fun. <laughs> it's going to be really fun. All right, everybody. See you all next week. <laughs>